You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. I don't know when was the last time you felt like you tried to initiate or start an impossible task, but let me tell you about one that the Gallup poll tried to do. In a world that seems to reject that there's any absolute truth, imagine undertaking the quest to figure out what America would say is morally acceptable or morally unacceptable. I mean, what would be more impossible? If there's no absolute truth, then where would you even begin? Well, the Gallup poll asked that question, talking to Americans and saying, hey, what do you think is morally acceptable and morally unacceptable? Well, lo and behold, they actually found several things, 11 things that they said America was united on was morally acceptable, okay? Here we go. Birth control, divorce, sex between an unmarried man and woman, a gay or lesbian relationship, gambling, having a baby outside of marriage, medical research using human embryonic stem cells, death penalty, the buying and wearing of animal fur, and doctor-assisted suicide. Now, America is united that all of those things are morally accepted. Now, I would ask you to consider on that list, I would think that you may say uh, you've got a problem with at least one of those things. Well, those were 11. They did come up with a list of seven things that they said were morally unacceptable, okay? Sex between teenagers, pornography, the cloning of animals, polygamy, the cloning of humans, and married men and women having an affair. It's interesting to me that that is the one that was most readily agreed upon as uh, as being uh, morally unacceptable. When we look at that list, I, I guess I would ask you to consider the list and say, you know, America has spoken, we agree on these things, we say these things are morally unacceptable, and yet there's three of the things that are on those two lists that we just looked at that are spoken of in today's passage. Marriage and divorce, or divorce, adultery, and pornography. And so when we come to this, I invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture to Matthew 5 or the Church Center app, and you can open it up. But if we come to this, the idea that America is, is okay with the divorce thing, but the pornography and the adultery thing, they're saying is unacceptable. And Jesus talks about all of these things. So much like last week when we were talking through Jesus talking about what it looks like, that there's a behavior that's a problem, but the behavior really begins before the behavior, and it begins in the heart or in the soul of us. So when we think about adultery and pornography uh, and, um, and divorce, is there any connection between those? And I, the words of this uh, filmmaker grabbed me. Michelle Brock was interviewed, uh, and she made a documentary about pornography. And her words on the subject were this, I recently made a documentary about pornography, and something that a director said in his interview caught my attention. No one has ever died from an overdose of pornography. Those words reflect a belief that many of us quietly ascribe to that our personal pornography habits are not that painful or harmful. Then she goes on to say this, when someone throws a hand grenade, it is impossible 
to know where every single piece of shrapnel will fall. That after hearing countless stories of how pornography has affected the lives of others, I've come to realize that the consequences of pornography use are akin to the flying bits of shrapnel, painful, unpredictable, and in some ways, fatal to our lives. Now, last week, as we started talking about what Jesus was doing on the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking about what life in the kingdom is going to look like. And so, I've used this example a couple of times with this metaphor about climbing the ladder of self-righteousness, and that if you want to climb that, re- that ladder of self-righteousness, you can go one rung at a time, and you can say, hey, I did this, I'm more good than bad, but I mean, I'm not perfect, but I did this. And so, last week, when Jesus began, if you thought, okay, he said, do not murder, you're like, okay, I can take a step up on that ladder. And then he said, but... If you've ever hated somebody, called anybody a name, thought yourself better than another person, thought somebody else was worthless, you've committed murder in your heart. Okay, well, let me take a step back down the ladder. He's going to do the same thing to us today. Because the idea of what was going on in the law was that we couldn't attain it, and so we understood it in ways that we could attain it, or at least we thought we could. And Jesus said, no, 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 You, you miss it. There's more going on here than what you're aware of. And so when we come into this message today, I want to say a couple of things from the beginning. Most most of the passages we're looking at are going to use the terms of husband to wife. And I think for us to understand the full extent of this message, we need to understand that it's also wife to husband. Is that we can't go into this and say that this is a man problem against a woman problem or a husband against a wife. We need to understand that this goes both directions in this marriage because the problems that we're going to talk about today are problems for men and they are problems for women. And so as we walk through this, I want you to know it's a heavy message. That's why we extended our children's ministry this morning. It's a heavy message. But if you hang with us, I think that we're going to get to a place of hope and healing that we can offer you, but the the road between now and then is going to be hard to hear some of what Jesus has for us today. So with that said, Matthew chapter 5, we begin in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. So let's begin with this idea. He once again says, you've heard that it was said, this is new information. You understood it in a way that you felt like you could accomplish it, but, but you've heard this before. Where have you heard it before? Well, like last time, we see it in Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments, and then you see it again in Deuteronomy which is the second giving of the law. Both times, you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not commit adultery. Adultery being defined as anybody that you would have a sexual relationship with outside of your marriage, your husband or your wife. That was the definition. Now, to be fair, Jewish scholars didn't take adultery so much as a purity issue. They took it as a possession issue. 
In other words, to commit adultery was to take something that belonged to somebody else. You either were taking somebody else's husband or you were taking somebody else's wife or you were going to take somebody who was going to become another person's husband or another person's wife. And with that understanding, recognize this. You actually have two of the Ten Commandments that deal with it because you shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife. See, that when you look at the terms of how adultery was viewed, that you were taking something that didn't rightfully belong to you, then all of a sudden, Exodus 20.17 captures that same idea. And so when we come into this and we start talking about what's going on in this, we see, you know, marriage was always to be upheld. We certainly see it when the author of Hebrews writes it this way, let marriage be held in honor among all believers unbelievers, the married, the unmarried, everybody. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. That everybody would have a general respect for what God intended the sexual relationship between a a husband and a wife to be. And that it, it deserved the respect of the community because it was the basic building block, certainly of the home, but of the community of which the the, community the community would come together and celebrate. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Well, God created the family and that bed to be a a sacred, sanctioned event for a husband and a wife. And if we go about living our lives in ways that we don't respect it, then God says, there's gonna be judgment for that because you're taking something that I intended for good and you're using it outside of the framework that I intended. And that wasn't new either. Author of Hebrews could say, hey, you've heard it said, go back to Genesis chapter two. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. You know, Genesis two, sin hasn't entered the world yet. Sin doesn't enter the world until Genesis three. Imagine this, a marriage that was created in a world without sin. And that's where marriage began. And it didn't begin with some man saying, hey, you know what'd be really great? is if I had an Eve. No, God goes through creation. He goes through every step of creation. He tells us everything is good in creation until it's the fact that Adam's alone. And all of a sudden, Adam's alone. And then he allowed Adam the gift of discovering that for himself. It didn't catch God off guard. He knew what he was doing. He sends Adam out in the world. He names all the animals. He comes back and says, wait a minute. They're coming two by two. I'm looking around. Why does everybody else have a partner and I don't have a partner? And God said, right on. That was what I wanted you to discover on your own. Now I'm going to put you to sleep. And he puts him to sleep. God fashions Eve out of his rib and he opens up his eyes and there's Eve. Now what a moment that would have been. If you remember back in languages, when you can take a word and make it masculine or feminine based on the ending, the Hebrew word for man is ish. The Hebrew word for woman is isha. Guess what ending you put on a noun to make it feminine in Hebrew? Ah. Adam woke up, Eve standing there in front of him, and he goes, you are made from me. We go together like this. I'm ish, you're isha. We're male, female. We fit together. We're the same the male version and the female version. God would say, that was always my intent, is that you would live together in this one flesh union, one emotionally, physically, spiritually. That was always the calling. But then something happened in the world. And for anybody of that day that could have looked around and said, you know what? Okay, I have not committed adultery. Let me take that step up the ladder and let me step up on that rung. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And now much like last week, 
Jesus is going to swing a bigger net like, oh, slow down. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay. Present tense. If you look, present tense, you have already committed past tense. The moment you look, it's already been committed. What's been committed? Adultery. And you and I are thinking, well, wait a minute. I thought it was the action. And Jesus wants to say, no, 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 no. It's not the action. Because before you get to the action, there is something that happens between here and here that leads into that. Now, the really hard thing about that for us is what? Is all of a sudden, Jesus just said, the lustful look is as wrong as the physical act. See why everybody just took a step back off that ladder? Because those words are really huge. So let's be clear. Seeing isn't sinful. You walk through a grocery store, you get up to the register, you got all the magazine covers there. Seeing is just vision. That's not the problem. When does it become a problem? Well, when the look begins to linger, and then somewhere the linger becomes lust. And somewhere that lust in time can become an addiction. But the look isn't sinful. The lingering is where it begins to happen. The problem with our society these days, right, is we don't look, we don't even just linger, we pursue. And we're filled with the culture that sexuality is everywhere. I mean, it is everywhere. Now, people struggle with the definition of what pornography is. I will offer you just a basic one. You could pick it apart if you wanted to. Anything that's intended to elicit a sexual response, be it in written word or still picture or moving picture. All of those things, I think, are, are this. And our culture is so fascinated with it is that we can say, okay, how bad is it out there? So most of these are not from a Christian uh, uh, source. Recovery Village, 40 million U.S. adults regularly visit pornographic websites. Every second, there's more than 28,000 people viewing pornography. You see, these are us. These are our people. This is our world that we live in. We're not just looking and lingering. We're moving all the way through the section. Well, according to the most visited pornographic website in 2017, that's how many visits there were, 28.5 billion 81 million a day, 25 billion searches are performed. That's 50,000 every minute. Because what's happened to us is when we lose the idea that lust will affect or steal another person, which really goes back to the same thing we talked about last week, is the failure to understand that the person on the other side of that camera or on the other side of that written page is a person that is made in the image of God that has inherent worth and value. How much? Well, Jesus on the cross to give you one example of how much worth and value is there. And so now all of a sudden we start saying, well, you know what? I can look at or do whatever I want to do. It's not hurting anybody else. Really? Because 10% of U.S. adults admit to having an addiction to internet pornography. Who's going to say that addiction's okay? We wouldn't say that because 200,000 of us, us, our parents, our siblings, our children, our coworkers, our classmates are all being drawn into this. And you and I could look up and say, well, it's true. I mean, like she says in the beginning, that filmmaker that says, you know what? Nobody's ever died from an overdose of pornography. Okay, maybe that's right. I mean, I can understand that. You can probably understand it too. 
So what is the impact? Well, how about this? Things that, condition, that frequently co-occur with that addiction, depression, anxiety, social anxiety, mood disorders, sex addiction, substance use disorders, memory problems, smoking and tobacco use, and sexual performance disorders. So you can say, well, nobody's dying from this addiction. Okay, maybe not technically, but look at all the stuff that attends it. And by the way, people are dying from some of the stuff that attends this addiction. Well, Lance, if it's so bad, why doesn't it go away? Because there's $16.9 billion behind it. And the hard truth is, behind it is this. The world doesn't care about you and me. The world doesn't care about whether or not we develop an addiction. They're after money. We're the ones that are coping with all of those disorders. We're the ones that are doing it. 28% of computer users view pornography in the workplace. As we've become so addicted, we can't even go to work for eight hours a day without looking at it. How dangerous is that? I saved this memo. This was from 2012. The Pentagon's Missile Defense Agency warned its employees and contractors to stop using their government computers to surf the internet for pornographic sites. Our missile defense system the memo said this, specifically, there have been instances of employees and contractors accessing websites, transmitting messages containing pornographic or sexually explicit images, according to that memo. These actions are not only unprofessional, which was a funny word for me to see them use there, they reflect time taken away from your designated duties. What duty? Protecting us, right, from missiles. They're a clear violation of federal and DOD regulations that consume network resources and, hello, can compromise the network through the introduction of malware, malware malicious code. Now, not only are you not on the fence protecting us, but what you're doing is welcoming viruses into the computer system, which will take away from our computer's ability to protect us as well. See, it's a huge problem. And we can say, well, what's the impact on marriage? Well, this is from a uh, Christian site. Marriage, married couples with one spouse watching pornography are two to three times more likely to divorce in the first two years of marriage than porn-free couples. One of the best predictors of divorce for a person is the depth of their pornography habit. I don't think we're probably surprised by that, are we? What about in the church? Well, 64% of Christian men, 15% of Christian women say they watch pornography at least once a month. And by the way, is it just in the pews? No, it's in leadership too. One in five youth pastors, one in seven senior pastors use pornography on a regular basis. Now, let's come back and look at what's going on in this passage. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. You may be thinking, okay, I stand pretty good. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Those numbers that we just looked at are staggering. They're staggering. And they yet speak to us because isn't it odd that in that first opening survey we talked about, the number of people that said pornography was morally unacceptable? See, we're not even living out the reality of what we say we believe. And he said, okay, so if you do that, you've committed adultery in your heart. How serious is it? Well, look at what Jesus says. He gives us, he gives us two examples that really are the same thing. One is your right eye, one is your hand. Look with me, verse 29. If your right eye right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Why? 
because it's better to lose one of your members than that of your whole body be thrown into hell. The idea is the same. That word hell is the word we looked at last week, Gehenna. It's talked about this valley just south of Jerusalem, and it was a place where at least during 2 Kings, during that time period, is that people would go offer child sacrifice to the pagan god Molech in that place. Now, by the time Jesus is there, they've quit doing child sacrifice, but it's just a garbage dump. And so you bring your your garbage there 24-7, it burns, it smells. It's always been a place that is gross and smelly and evil takes place there. That's always been what that was. So the metaphor has been that becomes the personification for what eternal punishment looks like for people that can't comprehend and don't understand the value of being made in the image of God, that lack the capacity to appreciate God and the worth and value we have, that's what happens. And the idea that it takes a radical change of heart, because you could have somebody without hands that could still struggle with lust. You could have somebody without eyes, without vision, that could still struggle with lust. I think Jesus' words are not to be that we need to go self-mutilate. I think his call is, we got a serious problem, and what's the worth and value of dealing with it radically if we understand what the consequences of it are? Because unless we understand the depth of, of the problem, then we can't understand the beauty of the cure. And that becomes the reality of what I think he wants to say to us here, is we've got issues going on that we need to deal with. We, as a culture, simply don't value marriage. We don't value the sanctity of what God intended for it to be. And so what ends up happening is we have all these things that are with us everywhere we go. I think D.A. Carson really captures it well when he says imagination is a God-given gift. We don't need to apologize for having an imagination. God gave it to us for good. But if that imagination is fed dirt by the eye, it will be dirty. All sin, not least sexual sin, begins with the imagination. So the idea that this was intended to be good is still there. The problem is we started filling up ourselves with look, linger, lust, addiction. And now we have lingered so long that we've created a lustful thing and we've crammed dirt into our eyes. Carson goes on to say, therefore, what feeds the imagination is of maximum importance on the pursuit of kingdom righteousness. The question you and I have to ask is when we find ourselves in a position where we go from look to linger, linger to lust, lust to addiction, we've got to ask ourselves some hard questions. What are we feeding our eyes? Because it's taken us out right and left. It's everywhere. Well, I think, I think Paul tells us what to linger on. How about Philippians 4? Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, linger on that. Whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, linger on that. Whatever is commendable, let's linger on that stuff. Because if there's anything excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, his words were think about these things. I'll go back to linger. Linger on that. Because we've got a problem going on all around us that we need to deal with. You know, it's interesting. When I talk to folks whether or not it's in my office, whether or not it's over uh, a cup of coffee, or if I'm in my house with with my kids, I use the same illustration. Imagine what it would be like if you knew the moment that the look became a linger and the linger became uh, a lust and the lust became an addiction. Before it became a problem, I think you'd say, okay, stop right here. 
Let me just stop right here because I don't, I don't want to go that far. I don't think anybody wants to go that far. Here's the problem. You and I don't ever know when it's going to move from the look to the linger, the linger to the lust, the lust to the addiction. If we knew, we would stop before that, right? And here's the thing. You think about all of those disorders that I named that go with addiction. Who wants to sign up for any of those? None of us. And yet the moment that we go from look to linger to lust to addiction, we've gotten on the train and we're headed to all of those consequences. And the words are really, really significant. What do we do? Consider the risk. Honor marriage. Because all of a sudden, Jesus just said, look, the lustful look is every bit as bad as the behavior. We need to hear that. We need to hear that. Shouldn't surprise us when Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exile, this place is not our home. They don't care about us. It's a $16.9 billion industry. They do not have your best at heart. They do not have my best at heart. They don't care. It's a reminder, this place isn't home. We're just passing through this. But as we pass through this place, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This is a battlefield for us. How do we do it? I like Job's words. I've made a covenant with my eyes. What? How do you make a covenant with your eyes? Eyes, I do not want to subject you to the dirt. I want the dirt gone. So I'm going to make every covenant I can to avoid the dirt. I can't help it if I, if I see it. If I just look and see it, I can't help it. But what I do from that point forward, I've got to make some decisions. Now, let me ask you. If you say, you know what? Lance, I'm a, this is already a struggle for me. I get it. I get it. Let me give you a little bit of encouragement. Turn over to, keep your finger here if you would, and turn over to Romans chapter 7. Okay? In Romans chapter 7, Paul is writing about something that I think is, some people say he's not a believer. I think he is a believer in Romans 7. Otherwise, he wrote Romans 1 through 6, not as a believer, and that seems crazy. So Romans 7, I think he's a believer, but I think he's talking about what so many of us have experienced. You know, I know, because if you look at verse 13 down, that next section, he's like, you know what? In the Christian life, I don't do what I want to do. I do what I don't want to do. Matter of fact, what I want to do, that's not what I do. I do just the opposite of what I want to do, and I do the other, right? I think we probably all have been there. And when it comes to these things, Lance, I don't want to linger. I don't want to lust. I don't want it to be an addiction, I just, I keep losing this battle. I think that's what Paul's saying in 13. But verse 21, he comes to this great point. This is where I think we find encouragement. So I find it to be law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's how we know he's a believer. I have never, ever heard an unbeliever say that in my inner man or woman, I joyfully concur with the law of God. That person doesn't exist. This is a person that knows the Lord. But I see in my members, verse 23, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Yeah, my mind, my heart wants to serve the Lord. It wants to do better in this battle of lust and addiction and pornography. It's there, I want to do better. That's not my heart, but I find this to be true. While my heart and mind want to honor the Lord in all this, I find this, the members of my body, my eyes, my ears, my mouth, my hands, my feet, it takes me there. That's such the normal Christian experience, isn't it? How do we know? 
Because in here, he joyfully wants to concur with the law of God, and he does. And that's true for so many of us that are watching today, that are in this room. Verse 24, he comes to a conclusion that many of us have come to, uh, to as well. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Will it ever get better? I am struggling so hard, I never get better. I can get better for a little bit, but it just never lasts. Who's gonna save me from this wretched body of death? It never gets any better. If you've ever tried to avoid this, you know, or any other temptation, you know exactly how he feels. Then he answers the question, verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's our answer. That's where health and healing and wholeness comes from. That's where we get the dirt out of our eyes, out of our imagination, and we get a purified heart and mind that only the Lord can do. Behavioralism will not work in this. It takes something far stronger. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. I'm all in on him, but I recognize that with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been set free. Doesn't mean there's not a struggle. Doesn't mean that we don't need to take some steps to, to get the dirt out of our eyes and out of our mind. But healing's gonna come only from the Lord. He's the only one that can do this. And he takes it very seriously. I think the question that we would need to answer is this. How radical has your intervention been to deal with it? He says, cut off your hand, rip out your eye. Doesn't solve the problem. But he wants a radical intervention And the thing is, if he's saying that lust is a moral equivalent to adultery, this next passage is every bit as difficult. Verse 31, it was also said that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. See, that passage didn't get any easier right there, does it? He begins it again with that authoritative. It was also said, but let me say this. Jesus going back to, uh, he's going back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. So two schools of rabbinic thought. One school said basically no fault divorce. Anything that you don't like about your spouse, you could divorce them for. Another school of thought said, no, it has to be really stringent. It has to be something on the levels of sexual immorality. It has to be on the level of some breach of modesty. So within Jesus quoting this, he's looking back and saying, okay, so this is a legal divorce. Without discussing what it would be, this is a legal divorce. He's found something indecent in this person. But what do you do? You write her a certificate of divorce. You put it in her hand and send her out of the house. Why? Because remarriage is always viewed as positive in Scripture. It's always viewed as positive. And so if you don't want to be married to this person anymore, give her the certificate of her divorce. Let her go. You don't get to hold her hostage. Let her go and go find another marriage partner and give it another shot. Now, the words are really strong here. So as we come to this and say this, I need to take a step back. Because in 2014, in uh, September of 2014, we did a four-sermon series on this. And it would be absolutely impossible for me to try to deliver four 40-minute sermons to you right now in the next, like, 12 minutes. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do. And I'll tell you more about this in a second. I'm just going to gloss over where we are in this and give you the resource if you want to study more. 
So our position on marriage, divorce, and remarriage is this. If you're divorced before you come to faith, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you are a new creation. You are set free from any of that. Why would you stick in a marriage that wasn't biblical? Why would you stay in a marriage that wasn't biblical? Why would we expect you to honor a biblical guideline? You wouldn't. If your divorce is before, excuse me, before you came to faith, then we would say, get remarried. You are free to do what you want to do as unto the Lord, okay? But then we see a couple of different things. One is, and I don't think Jesus is speaking exhaustively because Paul comes and adds to it. I think he's answering a specific question for a specific crowd. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, if you're married to an unbelieving spouse and your unbelieving spouse wants to leave, let them leave. You don't get to hold on to them. You don't, can't make them stay. You can't appeal to their faith. You can't appeal to the scriptures. They don't know the Lord. They don't care about this book. So let them go. We would also say sexual immorality. Deuteronomy 24, which we just looked at, later in Matthew, Matthew 19, sexual immorality. You know what the, by the way, you know what the Greek word for sexual immorality is? Porneo, where we get the word pornography from. It's the same word. So sexual immorality we see as one of the exceptions. We would add this, Exodus 21, the neglect of marital provisions, emotional needs, or marital love. Okay? Now, you can go and listen to these sermons, and you will get a full treatment on all of those things. But I know that in reading this passage, there's a lot here. And so I recognize it because we all have either experienced divorce, we came out of a home of divorce, we have somebody we know divorced, we all are familiar with it. And so as soon as you say that, ooh, where's it going? But let me be clear. God makes it clear. He's not a fan of divorce. Matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, his best way to understand the permanency of the marriage union is to compare the role of the husband and wife to Christ in the church. Divorce fractures that metaphor. And so his goal, I think, is to communicate the permanency of his love for us viewed through marriage. But there are times where the, agree the marriage covenant is violated so egregiously that he releases you from the marriage covenant. Was that his design? No, that was not his design. But it is real, and it is real life. And so there's a lot in here. There's a lot in here that creates a level of pain. One apologist looking at the decaying society around us I captured his view this way. I thought it was interesting. You can look at your decade if you're listed in this decade. In the 1950s, kids lost their innocence. In the 60s, they lost authority. In the 70s, they lost love. In the 80s, they lost hope. In the 1990s, kids lost themselves because everything was subjective now. Everything was subjective. And when this apologist was looking at the top reason that people in their 18 to 24-year-olds were going to counseling, he found two. One was pornography and the other was self-destruction. And that word denude isn't a word that maybe you're familiar with. It means to strip away the clothing. I mean, you probably could have figured that out. But let's be clear. The top reasons after all of those generations of coming out of that, being raised in that, and the impact of that, what was handed to kids was the ability to say, I can strip your clothing away and I can strip your value away and you don't matter anymore. You're a two-dimensional thing for my self-gratification. You have no worth and value. You're not made in the image of God. You matter for my selfish purposes. And once you decide that about the other person, you're on the path to deciding that for yourself. Well, they don't matter, and they're exposed, and they have no value. It's only a matter of time until I see that I have no clothes, I'm exposed, and I have no value. 
And all of a sudden, look at where we are. So Jesus' words, over the top, I recognize everybody in our century would say yes. But the moment we declare that Jesus' words are over the top, we're sitting in judgment on what he has said. These are his words. They aren't my words. I'm just telling you what he said. And he takes this stuff very seriously. Did he understand that in the 21st century, there'd be such a proliferation of pornography that we could carry it around in our pockets everywhere we go with our phones? Well, he's omniscient. So yeah, he knew that. So does it still speak to us? Well, yeah, it still speaks to us. But these words are so strong. Here's what you've got. On the bottom of of your outline, you've got a QR code. If you're using the Church Center app, you've got the link in there. We created a file folder that has a couple of things in there. Number one, in that folder, you will find the four-sermon podcast from the 2014 series we did on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We did that so that it'd be easy for you to find it. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage, four sermons from September of 2014. Those four sermons are there. The four teaching outlines that we use for that sermon series are in that folder as well. In addition to that, there is one sheet. You know, if you were to go hang a picture at your house, you probably don't need a very big hammer. If you want to go put up a fence in your yard, you probably want a bigger hammer. I recognize this. Depending on what you're facing in your life and how strong or the power or the influence of this stuff is, you may say, I don't need a big hammer. Maybe you say, I need a bigger hammer to swing at the problem. There's another document in there that is by no means exhaustive but just some sources for you, and you can decide which size hammer you need to deal with some of the the struggles and the addiction stuff or the struggle that comes with pornography. So whether or not it is a book or a workbook or a resource or a counseling center or a a seminar or a workshop, we've got a list of things there. If you say none of those fit, then reach out to a member of our shepherding team. Know this. Our shepherding team is all involved in this. We live in the same world you live in, and we walk with a lot of people through this. There's not a single member of our shepherding team that is not connected to somebody walking together towards wholeness and healthiness in this. There is hope. There is healing. But it doesn't come apart from the Lord. He's the only one who can do this. Because once we get dirt in that imagination, it's really, really hard to overcome. Now, the reality is, When I showed you this graphic a couple of weeks ago about this new heart, when Paul says, but I find this in my inner man or woman, I joyfully concur with the law of God. And I made the comment, is that the quest of the spiritual life is not to get anything else in. You have everything you need, and the quest is to get it out. But you can imagine, is the more we start feeding the flesh, in the words of Peter, abstain from this. We're just passing through this world. The more we feed the self, the less influence and impact that new heart's going to have in the way we live our Christian life. And then guess what? That new heart's not touching the world. Our self is touching the world. And the moment that happens, we lose the value of an image bearer, whether or not it's the other person or whether it's me. And I get reduced to some behavioral approach to life. You and I were created for more than that. And God gave us the sacred gift of marriage for good. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.